episode number 42. Welcome to the Higher Life Podcast. Lessons from Authentic Judaism. Get the inspiration you need for personal growth. Hosted by Rabbi Mitterhoff. Shalom, this is Rabbi Eliyahu Mitterhoff with this week's Higher Life Podcast. In this week's podcast, we have the Torah portion of the week, which is Bo, Arrogance and the Road to Destruction, a powerful parable about cooking for the public, a great story about Rav Isser Zalman Meltzer, and Peace in Your Home, The Wisdom of Woman. And now, the Torah portion of the week, with novel ideas from the classic commentaries. So the first verse in this week's Parsha reads like this. And God said to Moses, Go to Paro, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, in order to place my signs in his midst. So Romilla from Gateshead has a couple questions on this verse. First of all, why is God telling Moshe to go now to Pharaoh that his heart is hardened? Is this the right time for him to go to Pharaoh? Second of all, Rashi explains that Moses was sent to warn Pharaoh, but the warning's not going to help because right now Pharaoh's heart is hard. And the third question is a general question. How could it be that Pharaoh gets punished if God hardened his heart? It's like he took away his free will. So in order to answer these questions, we first bring the Shmos Rabbah. There's a Pasuk in Mishle that says like this, He shall mock the mockers, but to the humble he shall give grace. So the Midrash says, God himself will mock the mockers. Warning after warning is given to the wicked. Repeated opportunities for repenting. But there comes a stage where if a man refuses to listen to the warning, God then locks his heart up for the possibility of repenting. And he reaps retribution for his long persistence in evil. This was the case of Paro. God warned him five times and he paid no attention. So God said, since you have made yourself stiff-necked and hard-hearted, I too will add to your corruption. I have hardened his heart. So we see that if a person continues in his stubborn and arrogant ways, God will lock him in and he won't be able to turn away from them. And that is point number one. Point number two comes from a Gemara in Chagiga. It says like this, Acher, who was the Rav of Rabbi Meir, after he went off the derech, he went off the way, and he stopped following the Torah. He asked Rabbi Meir, his student, What is the meaning of the verse? God made qualities to correspond one to the other. Rabbi Meir replied, Everything that God has created has an opposing creation corresponding to it. He created both mountains and valleys, seas and rivers. Then Acher said to him, Yeah, but Rabbi Akiva taught like this. He created both the righteous and the wicked, heaven and hell. Each person has two portions prepared for him, one in heaven and one in hell. So if one person is doomed to hell, his unused portion in heaven will go to the righteous friend, while he will inherit his friend's unused portion in hell. This is unbelievable. He says that every person has a portion in heaven and also, God forbid, a portion in Gehenna. What happens if a person doesn't follow in the right way, so his portion from heaven goes to his friend? So that means that the people that are doing the right things, they're gaining double and triple. And the people who are doing the wrong things are going to lose their portion. And Rav Miller also wants to explain that good and evil correspond to each other depending on the time in history. For example, when there's tremendous evil in the world, there's also tremendous potential for good. So that when people are corrupt and they're all doing the wrong things, the people that are doing the right thing can gain the benefit, all the goodness of that holiness and spirituality. So it's like a seesaw effect. And this answers the first question, as why was it right for Moshe to go to Paro exactly at the time 
where he was hardening his heart. Because Sid's power was descending, was going down and down, more stubborn, more arrogant. He was reaching the lowest level of evil, and he was cutting himself off from any voice of consciousness or any idea of justice. He didn't want to listen to what God was saying. So at that point, God cut off his retreat. He couldn't come back at that point. And that was exactly the point where Moshe was supposed to show up, where the Geula, the redemption, was about to happen. Because as Paro, the leader of the Egyptian people, were descending, at that point, the Jews were going to go up and they were going to be redeemed. Because as the evil increased, so did the goodness increase. The corruption and the evil that the Egyptians created set the environment for the redemption of the Jewish people because evil and good work together hand in hand. So now we answer the first question as why was that the proper time to come? Exactly at that point, that's going to bring redemption. Go to power now. And the second question was, since Rashi said it was a warning, what was it going to help that Moshe went to Paro? Now it comes up just the opposite. The fact that Moshe warned him, that sign sealed and delivered the deliverance of the Jewish people. Because at that point, Paro went completely off. He didn't listen to the warning, and that was the end of him. And the third question was, how could Paro have responsibility if God closed off his heart? The answer is, he was the cause for God to closing off his heart. Since he didn't listen so many times, at a certain point, Hashem cut him off. But what comes out of this is a very scary concept. And the concept is that God gave us free will to do whatever we want. We could spend our entire lives doing the wrong thing, if we want to. I've said this before, Al-Pikabana, the world is shaped like a hay. A hay is open on the bottom. In other words, Gehanim, evil is open. You can do whatever you want, and God will let you do whatever you want. But if you continue in your evil ways, he'll lock you in that path and you won't be able to come back, God forbid. For most people, that's not true. Everybody can cause their pachuva. Everybody can change themselves. We have to assume we can change ourselves. But in, in potential, a person can go so far off that he won't be able to come back. And there's no rules. It's an open field. You can do whatever you want with your life. And God's not going to stop you. We see it today everywhere. People are doing, things are worse and worse. People are doing whatever they want. There's no one to stop them. Nobody, nobody stops anybody. But at the same time, since we're living in a generation where things have become so degraded, so disgusting, that the people who are going in the direction of holiness can go higher and higher. So if a person chooses to do good, he has all that goodness, that potential goodness that the evil people gave away, he can pick up on it. It's an unbelievable idea. But the scary idea is that people could do evil in this world to do the wrong thing. They don't get punished. Sometimes you see somebody doing something wrong, a kid or somebody doing something wrong, and you just wish, why doesn't God show them? The answer is God's not going to show them if they don't want to listen. If they harden their heart and they don't listen one time, two times, three times, they can go in their way. So you say, where's the justice? <laughs> the justice is not in this world. The justice is in the next world. The justice will come at the time of the Gula, when Hashem shows the world what's right and what's wrong, when the redemption comes. But in the meantime, people could do whatever they want. Your kids could do whatever they want. Your spouse could do whatever they want. You're not going to see the punishment because God created this world with free will to allow people to do whatever they want. It has to come from the goodness of our hearts and our intellect and our understanding of a kar satov, of appreciating the good that God gives us, that we want to do the right thing. But if we don't have that, it's an open game. And I'll add to that, God doesn't need us. We need God. God doesn't need us. God is the king with us or without us. 
So when we do good, the good is for us. It's our good. We're gaining from it. We do bad, we get punished. God doesn't care. He made the world with free will. Choose. Go the way you want to go. Derech Adam The way that a man wants to go, God helps him. God helps the thief. God helps the murderer. Who gives power to the sinner why he sins? Who gives life to the sinner why he sins? And people use it as a proof that there is no God. They want to say, since you see, you don't get punished when you, when you do these things, must be there's no God. But really, it's just the opposite. It shows the greatness of God. It shows the patience of God. That's what the whole Sefer, Tamar Devor, is about. That a person can sin, and God will continue to do good for him, and give him another chance and another chance. doesn't mean there's no God. It means that God is great. It means that God has patience. That means that God's giving you another chance. And it's all for you. You're not doing God any favors. So in this week's Parsha, we also have Pesach, the going out of Mitzrayim. And there's a Pasuk that we read in the Agada, which says like this, And when your son will ask you tomorrow, saying, What is this? And you will answer him. It was with a mighty hand that Hashem took us out of Egypt, from the house of bondage. So Rashi points there on that Pasuk, that in four different places the Torah mentions these sons' questions, which is the four sons and the Pesach Agada. The wise son, the wicked son, the simple son, and the one who doesn't even not ask. So Revolbi points out that the wicked son asked the question also, but he changes the language, which is what? What is his service for you? Which you make the deal, could make the inference for you, but not for me. And that's what makes him wicked. He says, many of us are guilty of this. We learn Torah, but we do not necessarily allow its lessons to impact our personal lives. God forbid, like Paro. He says, a person who does not derive Musr, he doesn't learn anything ethical. From what he learns, no matter how great his stature, he's considered by Chazal to be wicked in this respect. A person who doesn't gain from his learning, he learns Torah, he learns Musr, he learns ethics, but it doesn't change him, he's considered wicked. The problem is that the learning does not impact how they act. He says a true study of Musr involves taking one line of Masih Sharm, the path of the just, measuring what it says against our own personality. And in the event where the two do not match up, we have to change ourselves to fit the Torah. And if not, God forbid, we're like Paro. God is telling Paro one thing, and he's not listening. He doesn't want to fit in, he doesn't care. Same thing, Lord, later by us. We read Torah, we learn Torah, we know it's right, we don't change. We don't, we don't try to fit ourselves into the Torah, we don't try to be the Torah personality, to fit ourselves towards the Torah. The Torah doesn't have to fit us. God is not in our pocket. We have to fit towards the Torah. We have to come towards God. We have to read and learn what it means to be righteous, to do the right thing, to act properly. And then we have to try to live up to those standards. Not the opposite. Not to bring the standards down to us, to make the Torah fit us. If not, we're like peril. So the question is now, how do we change ourselves? How do we become more flexible and not be stubborn and arrogant the way peril was? If not, we're just going to continue in our headstrong way. And after 120 years, we're going to be surprised. Not in a good way. So I want to bring out one potential aspect that can help us to change and to grow, which I learned from Rabbeinu Bachia in this week's Parsha. Rabbeinu Bachia says on this exact verse, God said to Moses, Go to Paro, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. So Rabbeinu Bachia explains, what does it mean, go to Paro? He says, whenever God instructed Moses to go to Paro, the meaning was to go to the palace. Paro's palace. And he says the reason why Paro was so arrogant was because he was in his palace. He demonstrated his pride in his palace. 
feeling that this was not the place where anyone could dare threaten him. He felt safe inside of his house. The Torah wanted to show of Paro's arrogance. Also by Nebuchadnezzar, he also boasted about his palace. There's a passage of Daniel that said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was tranquil and vigorous in my house. He felt safe inside of his house. So one thing we can do to help take away our arrogance is to realize how unstable our reality really is. In other words, in the house, you feel comfortable, right? I have a nice house, I have a nice couch. But the reality is, is that's nonsense. The whole world is floating in space. We have to conceptualize the reality. The reality is, God forbid, there could be a tsunami, there could be a hurricane, there could be an earthquake, Lolino. What's stability? We don't have stability. I saw a nice quote that said, relax, everything is out of control. And that's our reality. Everything is out of control. God's the one who's in control, not us. So by not putting so much emphasis on the externals, on our safe house and our couch and our television, everything's great. And understanding the reality, which is the instability of our Matthias, of our situation. We know that a person has to have faith in stability, that everything's going to be okay, everything's going to be all right. But a year at Shemayim, a person who fears God, understands that that stability is only coming by the grace of God. And if not, God forbid we'll be arrogant. Why should we change? Why should we grow? Why should we do anything? Everything's fine. I don't have to listen to God and I have free will. I can do whatever I want, right? But that's arrogant. That's not seeing the chesed that God is doing to us. The kindness that he gives us air and water and food. And everything works. And the blood pumps and the chemicals in our body work, and the vitamins, and the minerals, and there's oxygen in the air, and it's the right temperature outside. If the temperature would change by 100 degrees, everything's gone. We get so used to it by living in our comfortable houses that we forget about God. That's what Rabbeinu Bachia said. I just want to bring down one other practical solution to help a person to change, which is to change the environment. In other words, a lot is just a question of your situation that you're in person doesn't live in a religious neighborhood, he's far away from a shul, he's not going to be too religious. If your person is in a bad environment, has the wrong friends, he has to get himself away from those friends and get himself in the right crowd. Because a person is, is affected by his neighbors and environment. He's measuring everything based on his neighbors, based on his society and his culture. So if he's in a bad culture, he thinks he's a sadik. He's a little better than the next guy, but you put him in a different culture, put him into a religious world, You'll see that he's not even up to par. So that's just a practical solution. But that's a whole Musa in itself. But the bottom line is, is that we have to do cheshbon and nefesh. We have to do a spiritual accounting to make sure we're on the right path and going in the right direction. And not continuing, God forbid, arrogantly and stubbornly on the wrong road. Here is a powerful The Magid Maduma brings a Pasuk in this week's Parsha, and it says, And so that you may relate in the ears of your sons and grandson how I made a mockery out of the Egyptians. So he brings a mushal like this. If a person has to cook or bake food for his family, so he cooks this exact amount that he needs for his family, and he cooks what they know they like. On the other hand, if he has to cook food for the public, so he has to cook a large variety of food to make sure each person gets a different thing that he likes. And he has to cook a lot more that everybody gets enough. So too with the Makos, the ten plagues. Really, God could have made just one plague. He could have made just Dam, and then a ten times, or frogs, 
and done it 10 times, and everybody would have been scared he would have let the Jews go. But that wasn't the primary objective, just to let the Jews go. The Pusik says that you should relate it in the ears of your sons and your grandsons, that it should continue for generations. Therefore, God made 10 makos, because later in generations, some people are going to really be affected by hearing that there was dam, other will be affected by hearing there was frogs, other by wild animals. Each one will hear a different thing that will move them. So he's just wanted this idea to continue for generations, how he made a mockery of the Egyptians, and he wanted to have emotional impact. Therefore, he made 10 different plagues, which will affect different kinds of people. It's time for Great Stories About Great Rabbis. The verse says, You should not eat any type of leavening. So one time in Poland, the question arised, there was this grain alcohol they used to use to cook with as fuel. So what happened? That alcohol had mixed in it. They used to put poison in it to take the taxes away, that it was not considered a drink, but it was used for fuel. So the question was, is the Jew allowed to use that during Pesach or not? The problem was, was the non-Jews used to take that fuel and they were able to extract the poison from it in order to drink it. So the question was, is it considered food or not considered food? So if Isser Zalman Meltzer, he said it was prohibited. Why? Because he said, you see that you can take the poison out, it's considered a food. While on the other hand, the Rav from Slutsk said, it's permitted. Why? Because right now it's poison. So if Isser Zalman sent this question to Rev Elio Chaim the Rav of Lodz, everybody accepts his opinion. So he says, if I send this question to him, whatever he pesaks, everybody's going to accept that. So he mailed the question back, and the answer was that it was Usser, which is like Rev Elio Zalman Meltzer, forbidden. But what happened was, by mistake, the mailman delivered that letter to Rev Yosef Maslatsk, the other Rav who permitted it. So instead of Rav Isser Zalman Meltzer having to tell him that Rav Mizel agrees with me, the letter was sent directly to the, the other Rav, Rav Yosef. So what did Rav Isser Zalman Meltzer say about this? He said, Heaven protected the honor of this rabbi. It would not be proper for him to hear from somebody who's arguing with him that the final ruling was against him. Instead, God set up a situation where he was able to hear directly from Rav Mizel. And then he could just claim he changed his mind. Learn to give, love, and communicate. This is Peace in Your Home. Rav Nachman Diamond speaks this week on the wisdom of women. So he says, you can't change another adult. And you can't change your wife. But he says, on the other hand, woe to the man who doesn't change his wife. And woe to the wife who doesn't change their husband. So there's a contradiction. If you can't change an adult, so how do you change them? So the building going explains the difference between a dictator and a king. A dictator is someone who dominates and he uses his strength and the other person's weak, where a king is the opposite. The king, everybody loves the king and they want to do what the king says. It's not a power struggle. It comes from an inner nobility. So he said the house, the Jewish home, is not a government. It's supposed to be a palace where there's a king and a queen which means you don't boss the other person around. You just live up to your own inner nobility, and the other person wants to follow in your direction. He tells the story of his teacher. There's always this teacher that everybody loves a teacher, and everybody wants to do what the teacher wants them to do. It's not a power struggle. They love the teacher because of the nobility of the teacher. So if the husband is noble, the wife's going to want to do what the husband does. And if the woman is noble, so the husband's going to want to please her. 
So one time there was a not religious couple that wanted to get married. But the problem was, as the girl was getting married, she realized, I don't want to be not religious. I want to be more religious. I want to have a house with values in it. I see what's going on around me. I see what's going on in the world. I want to raise my kids with Jewish values, good values. So she wanted to be religious. The problem is the husband was not really interested. But the husband also compromised. He said, okay, I'll keep Shabbos. I'll do this and I'll do that. What happened? After a month or two, he says, listen, I'm not interested. The husband says, I'm not interested in this. And the woman was very upset. She didn't know what to do. So she came to the Rav crying, what am I supposed to do? My husband one of us doesn't want to be religious. He says to her, listen, you're trying to change him. It's not going to work. But I'll tell you what you can do. It's a long haul. This is what you do. Don't criticize him. Not even once. Even your facial expression shouldn't criticize him. And even if he drives on Shabbos, don't say nothing to him. Smile to him. Say bye. Have a nice time. When he, comes, when, when he leaves, you can cry or you want your pillow. When he comes back, say, hi, how are you? Had a nice time? And give him a good feeling. You, on the other hand, you increase your Yiddishkeit. You keep a better Shabbos. You dive in better. You become a kinder person, a nicer person, more caring. You become more noble. And little by little, he'll be drawn after you. It's going to take a long time, but it will work. So he says that after a long time passed, a couple came knocking on his door. The man had a, a hat and a beard, and the woman had her hair covered. So they said, do you remember us? He says, no, he didn't recognize them. Then they explained who they were. And he said that my wife explained that her behavior was not really coming from herself. It was all coming from the advice of the Rav. So I wanted to come and thank the Rav for his expert advice. That's what he meant at the beginning. Woe to the woman who doesn't change her husband. And you can't change your husband, but you can change yourself. And if you change yourself, automatically you're going to change your spouse and everybody around you. If you make your wife the queen, she'll make you the king. And if she makes you the king, you'll make her the queen. So the famous story of Rabbi Akiva, who married Rachel, the daughter of Kaaba Sabu. Kaaba Sabu was the wealthiest man in Yushalayim. He could have had the best guy for his daughter. Instead, Rabbi Akiva, who was a poor shepherd, who came from converts, and he was an Amaharetz, he didn't even learn anything, he didn't know anything. But somehow Rachel saw in him, she used to be, he used to be the shepherd for her father. And Rachel saw in him tremendous potential. So she said to him, if you agree to study Torah, I'll marry you. So he agreed. So what happened as time went by? Okay, it's time now to go learn. Now she says, I'm embarrassed. I can't go. People are going to make fun of me. So what happened? She didn't respond with her emotions. She used the wisdom of women. She didn't say anything. So what did she do? She went to the shuk. She looked for a donkey that had a sway back. And then she bought this donkey. She put a lot of dirt on his back. And then she started to grow tomatoes or whatever on the donkey's back. After they grew, she says to her husband, let's go to the shuk now. She takes the shuk and she takes the donkey and her husband and she puts the donkey over there next to the shuk and everybody walks by, they start laughing. Look at that donkey. He's got tomatoes growing on his back. That was day one. After day two, same thing. They brought the donkey there. Everybody's laughing at the donkey, making fun of the donkey. Day three, less people are laughing already, but day four, one guy comes and says, hey, look at that donkey. Nobody pays attention. She said to her husband, same thing by you. It's true. You're going to be embarrassed. You're going to show up there. You're an older man already. You don't know anything. You show up to cater with the little kids and the people will be making fun of you. But they'll make fun of you for one day, for one month, for two, three months. But after that, they're going to stop making fun of you. So what happened? It worked. Rabbi Akiva went to go learn and he became Rabbi Akiva, the, one of the greatest rabbis of all times. So what happens nowadays? A girl who's trained to marry a Tamachachim, she marries this guy. He thinks she's great. After a month or two, they see the guy doesn't get up from the minion. He doesn't want to learn. 
So what does she do? She starts to badger him and yell at him and scream at him. And she feels, oh, I was cheated. What happened? I got this bad guy. It's horrible. So she tortures him and she feels she has the right to scream and yell at him. That's, everything's going to be lost that way. Nothing's going to work. So what does he say to her? As Zivo gets, according to their one deeds, must be you're also not on the level. You have to look at yourself. So it's all up to you. If you're clever, you'll be quiet. And you'll show your nobility. And from your nobility, from the woman's nobility, the man will turn around. Okay, that's it for this week's podcast. Please share it with your friends. I need you to put ratings on iTunes. If you can put comments and ratings on iTunes, it will really help the podcast. Thank you for listening. Your voicemail could be featured on the Higher Life Podcast. Just visit RabbiMinterhoff.com to ask questions or leave comments. 